Hi, this is Anthony. I want to let you all know that given it seems we're all about to spend a lot more time indoors, I have decided to add a free book bonus to Writing and Breathing Patreon supporters. Everyone who becomes a manuscript level supporter before March 31st, 2020 and maintains that support through June 2020 will get a signed copy of my next novel, The Tempest Project, mailed to them. Yes, that includes shipping. If you're already a manuscript supporter, don't worry, you're already on the list. And if you're an existing patron at a lower pledge level, just bump your support up to the top level and keep it there through June and you'll get a book too. Go to patreon.com slash writing and breathing to pledge your support. Remember, you must pledge at the manuscript level, that's $8 or more, before March 31st, 2020 to qualify. And now on with the show. Hello, I'm Anthony Johnston, and you're listening to Writing and Breathing, a show where I chat with fellow authors of all kinds about why, how, and what we write. And my guest today is the novelist Vasim Khan. Vasim, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on, Anthony. You're very welcome. So first of all, for listeners who may not be familiar with your work, just briefly tell us who you are and what you do. All right, so I'm, uh, I'm an author who uh, I was born in Britain. I grew up here. Uh, but at the age of 23, I went to work in India as a management consultant, and this was back in 1997. I spent 10 wonderful years there, and when I got back to the UK and I knew I couldn't go back to India, I decided to write a crime series set in uh, modern Mumbai, featuring uh, a police inspector from the Mumbai Police Service who retires in his late 40s. His name is Inspector Chopra, and in the first book in the series, The Unexpected Inheritance of Inspector Chopra, he uh, not only inherits a, a case that nobody else wants to look at, but he also inherits a baby elephant. And uh, the, the, the series is now five books old, and it basically follows Chopra, who leaves the service and sets up his own detective agency called the Baby Ganesh Detective Agency. And in each of these books, he solves various murders and kidnappings and, and, and other crimes. Yeah, it's, uh, and it's a delightful series as well. I'm, well thank I, you. You know, I'm, I'm a fan myself. So... Uh, so how long did you spend in Mumbai before you came back to the UK then? Uh, so it was a decade. I, you know, when I went there, I had uh, no idea what I was letting myself in for. Uh, my father was born in pre-partition India, moved across at the time of partition to Pakistan, uh, then moved to the UK as a younger man. So I was born here, grew up here, uh, you know, watched Bollywood movies, had a few memories from my dad, but not very many. Uh, so it was a real assault on the senses uh, uh, for me when I got there. And I and I I just fell in love with the country, uh, with what was happening because India was moving from being a largely pre-industrial economy to the global powerhouse that we know her as today, and that change I could see on a daily basis on the ground, the way it was transforming places like Mumbai, and I and I think that was my real motivation over those ten years, picking up those memories to come and put those into a book. And did you? I mean, did you always want to be a writer? Did you have that ambition when you moved there, or was that? Was it something about being in Mumbai that, you know, made you think, oh, I could I could get all this down? Uh, I wrote my first novel age 17. Um, I was in my Terry Pratchett Discworld period. Uh, and I tried <laughs> to write. He made it look so easy that I, I thought I could do this. And, the, and I wrote a book, completed it at the age of 17, sent it into a bunch of agents, uh, expected to sit back, get a massive uh, writing contract, uh, and therefore have to avoid having to go to university and do a proper job. Uh, of course, that didn't happen. I got my first set of rejection letters, uh, crushing, but it did mean that I had to then 
follow the route that's usually outlined for most uh, Asian uh, Asian kids, uh, uh, which is to either become a doctor, lawyer, or an accountant. Uh, so I studied accounts at the London School of Economics, and then I decided that I couldn't spend the rest of my life actually being one. And so I agreed with my parents that I could be a management consultant. Uh, they didn't know much about what that meant. I didn't know either. But we both knew that, uh, you know, management consultants supposedly earned a load of money. So I, I ended up doing that, and that took me out to India. Well, and it's a white-collar, respectable job. So the sort of thing parents can approve of, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, <laughs> so you started young then. Wow. Okay. That's uh, and I know I happen to know this about you that you are a big science fiction and fantasy fan, even though that's not what you write. But it sounds like that's what you started trying to do. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I grew up with the classic, uh, classic sci-fi writers Asimov and Arthur C. Clarke, and a Canadian writer called Greg Bear, who was my favorite for a long time. And I and I wrote short stories before I was seventeen. I wrote a lot of science fiction short stories. None publishable. I mean, they were in longhand. This was the days of sure. We didn't even have uh, proper computers and things, uh, so they never went anywhere. But it did mean that by the time I got to my mid-teens, I had decided in my mind that I was going to be a, a rich and successful writer. Uh, history didn't quite um, catch <laughs> up with me for another what three decades. So you know, I wrote seven after that initial offering at the age of seventeen. I wrote another six novels. Um, you know, when I, when I was in India, I used to write a novel every few years and then back in the UK. And I, every time I finished one, I would send them out to a whole bunch of agents in the UK uh, and collect another crop of rejection letters. I must have something like 200 rejection letters over that 25-year-old period. Wow. Yeah, I, I heard somebody say the other day, uh, and I, I can't remember who it was, I heard it on a podcast, and somebody said something like, uh, writers, don't lose hope. I got 46 rejection letters before I got my 47th rejection letter. <laughs> I think we can all sympathize with that. Yeah. Uh, so then, okay. So you moved to India, you, you had a career. I mean, you, you know, you had a job and you had a career and presumably, uh, you know, we're looking at, I mean, you knew by now that being a writer wasn't as easy as just sending off a novel and sitting back and letting the millions roll in, as I say, a lesson that we all learn fairly early in life. Um, so you presumably thought, well, you know, I'll keep trying to do that, but being a management consultant is my career. And then, but then you move back to the UK, presumably as part of your job? Uh, no. So I, I left India because my mother uh, got cancer. Oh. And uh, so I had to make a decision and I said, I've been away for 10 years. I want to come and spend some time with her. She only had a year to live, apparently. Uh, so I came back to the UK and I wanted a more flexible working day. So I joined uh, a university. I joined UCL, where I work at the Jill Dando Institute of Security and Crime Science. I've been there for 14 years. Uh, as I said, it's more flexible. It allowed me to spend more time with, with my mother. And she uh, she actually managed to last another seven years. So that was good. Um, but I loved working in the university so much that I decided not to go back to management consultancy, which was great fun in India. Uh, but it is a long hours and it is sometimes quite stressful uh, because it's all about profits and maximizing, uh, you know, that revenue, that kind of thing. Uh, whereas working in a university, especially in, in, in the department that I'm in, it's, it's all about trying to make society a safer and better place. Yeah, I mean, that's quite a contrast, quite a reversal from, as you say, the kind of hard nosed profit, profit, profit emphasis in management consultancy to suddenly academia. It is. But it just, uh, I think that having another career, 
not just helps to pay the bills when you're when you suddenly discover that that the riches are not going to roll in from writing unless you're extremely lucky uh, but it also allows you to experience relationships with with other people experience the world uh, and builds that store of knowledge within you so that when you start to write for example real life relationships at work you actually can use something from reality whereas if you know you just are a writer holed up in your in your loft and you've never really gone out there and, and tried to earn a living or or tried to interact with other people in social environments you might struggle to to put authenticity into that kind of uh, of uh, material i couldn't agree more i mean i'm sure there are writers out there who have n- never done anything except write and produce good work but certainly most of my favorite writers in all media you know not just novels but in across all media are people who yeah have had some life experience you know have had jobs have spent some years traveling or whatever and just kind of been out there and seen the world before they then sit down and seriously starts writing. I mean, we all, again, it's a trait of all writers. I think that we all start writing quite early, but there there comes a point for all of us where we go, okay, I'm actually going to sit down and take this seriously now. Um, and I think it helps if, as you say, you've had got that life experience and that experience of people and relationships and, you know, what real life is like before you get to that stage, you know, after you've got your, what is it, they call it like 10,000 pages of rubbish uh, written and rejected, you know? <laughs> well, I think this is the thing that, because I often do uh, workshops for, for budding writers and they don't seem to, a lot of them seem to have this starry-eyed idea that you can just wake up one day and write a novel um, and nothing could be further from the truth. It, and it's the other old old uh, quote that people come out with, that everybody has a novel inside them. Uh, that may be true, but whether or not you have developed the skills to be able to do justice to that idea that you've got inside you is a completely different thing. And it's like anything else. Well, if you want to be a tennis player, you're expected to spend, you know, a decade hitting like 20, 30, 50, 100,000 balls against uh, over the net before you're any good. So why should writers expect to just wake up one day and write the novel? Absolutely. This actually touches on something else that I've talked about many times before, which is the you know, writing makes you a better writer. There is no better way to learn how to write than by writing. And you're right. Some people, uh, I don't want to just say younger people because that's tarring everyone with the same brush, but should we say people who haven't yet done much writing often disagree with that and think that that's not the case, but it really is like the more you write, if you are prolific and if you finish your projects, you will improve. Uh, because as you say, it's like, how could you not? Yeah, exactly. And, there's, and, there's, and it's not to uh, take away anyone's enthusiasm. There's a great anecdote that I always, that, that really made a big difference in my career. Now, so I, I, so after my reading a lot of sci-fi phase, I started to read a lot of literary fiction and I still do to this day. Uh, I love it. And there's, a, there's an author who I really got to like, uh, an American called John Irving. And he wrote books like The World According to Garp, um, you know, turned into a big movie with Robert mm-hmm. Williams. Uh, a prayer for Owen Meany, these kind of books, and he won huge, you know, kudos for as being a literary author. But he once was at the same stage where he'd written a bit, didn't get anywhere, and he was thinking about giving it up and going back to teaching uh, full time. And then he met an author that he really admired, and he talked about it 
this 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 crisis of of confidence that he was having. And what this other famous author said to him was, John, you've got to stop saying that you will one day become a writer. Just accept that that is what you are. You are a writer, whether or not you've had success yet or not. And that is what you should wake up every day thinking to yourself, I'm a writer. I may not be published yet. I may not be successful to the level that I want to be yet. But if you wake up every day thinking that you are a writer, you will automatically be in the mind frame where you want to learn, where you want to write and practice and get better. And hopefully one day it will happen. Yeah, and it's very American, but uh, also very valid. (laughs) You mentioned the concept of doing justice to the idea, doing justice to an idea that you had. I find that really interesting because for a long time, that was something that I really struggled with. Uh, I wouldn't start on projects. I wouldn't write out ideas that I had because I didn't think I was good enough to do them justice. I think that's something that probably I, I would assume most, you know, starting out writers struggle with. So when did you, I mean, again, bearing in mind that you came from having read science fiction and fantasy and then literary fiction what made you think oh actually i can do crime and that's what i'm gonna do uh so i think uh, towards the end of my 20s and, and early 30s i started to read a lot of crime uh and started to increasingly watch a lot of crime on tv which is frankly where a lot of people get their initial inspirations from uh as far as crime novelists go uh, and i thought i think that was that was what propelled me towards r- thinking of how I wanted to shape the story. Because the story I really wanted to tell in the Baby Ganesh series is about modern India and how we've got this contrasting environment of, you know, lots of wealth and, and Western thinking coming into the country and changing uh, changing things on the ground. And yet we still have these legacy issues of old India, caste prejudice and, you know, religious intolerance and lots of poverty, slums, slums next to skyscrapers, etc. So that was the... The, the world that I wanted to capture. And then I thought, what's the best way of me framing this? Trying to write another literary book about India, which is what the industry normally expects people of, mm. of my background to write. You know, if you're a brown author um, from, from the subcontinent, everybody wants you to be the next Salman Rushdie and, and to write this massive tome, uh, literary tome. Uh, and, you know, nothing wrong with that. I mean, I love that kind of fiction. But, that, but then I thought to myself, that's just... That's just not me. I've tried for so many years because I tried to write literary fiction. I tried to write contemporary novels. I tried to write fantasy. None of it worked. And so I thought to myself, right, you're 40 now uh, or almost 40 now. You want to write about this country that you that you lived in. You want to bring those people to life. Why don't you just write a book that you would really like to read and that you know whistles along and that you find interesting? So two things made that decision happen to make it into a crime novel. One was the idea that I came up with, which was to have a policeman who inherits this baby elephant. I just thought that's something different, hasn't been done. I'd fallen in love with elephants while in India, having seen them in the streets, which is certainly not something I'd previously experienced. (laughs) Um, And then the other thing that inspired me was the success of a series called The Number One Ladies Detective Agency. Uh, series by Alexander McCall Smith. And I'd fallen in love with those books. And then I thought to myself, well, here's a man who lived, you know, he's a white man, but he lived in in uh, Botswana for a few years. And that allowed him to bring this country to life 
in a way that people perhaps who hadn't been there could experience with him. And he did it with a set of likable characters that people fell in love with, and it became very successful. And so my thinking was, well, why can't I create a set of likable characters in an environment that people may think they know? People think in Britain, they think they know India from the days of the Raj, but we've moved on from that. You know, we're 70 years on from that. Yeah, that was a long time ago. Yeah, that was a long time ago. And people perhaps don't really know what modern India is like. Um, so I thought, let's showcase that. That's brilliant. So. Um, you had you tried to address it in literary fiction? Then you said that you know you tried all these different things and they weren't working, and then you came to crime. Had you actually written? Is there a, is there a, a literary novel about modern India tucked away in a drawer somewhere? Yes, and it's pretty bad, and that's why it will never see the light of day. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we all have those uh, those relics in our drawers that uh, we we dream of one day reviving when we suddenly get a con- publishing contract. Uh, but I did discuss this with my agent and we've, we've all decided that, nope, it wasn't of the right uh, standard or the right theme, uh, you know, too cliched, too done before. So let's not even think about it. Yeah, which is, uh, I mean, again, a harsh reality that a lot of authors, I think, have to face because, yes, it's very tempting to think, ah, well, you know, when I'm famous, I'll go back to this novel idea that I had before and, uh, you know, and I'll make it good and, and people will want to publish it. And that's, I think that really doesn't, you know, it's not impossible, but it rarely happens. Yeah, almost, almost never happens. I mean, the other, the other issues that I've come across over the last six odd years of being published uh, uh, or five odd years, um, having now navigated the industry and made a lot of friends and talked to a lot of people is these, these twin ideas of, of authenticity and, um, you know, cultural appropriation that have suddenly become big themes uh, because of the whole push towards diversity in the arts. Mm. Uh, but as an, as an author, especially if we're, we're talking to your audience of, of budding uh, authors, uh, it's, you really do now have to assess these two things, authenticity and cultural appropriation before you sit down and write anything because people within the industry have suddenly become very, very, uh, what's the right word? Not scared, but very, very nervous of publishing things where they feel that they will be criticized for promoting an author who does not have, uh, in quote marks, the right to write about a particular topic. Now, I don't know what your feeling is about this. I mean, I find that very restrictive as as an author, not speaking just for myself, but for, for authors in general. Uh, but then again, I can understand where it's coming from. I, well, and that tends to be my attitude as well. I understand entirely where it's coming from. I, I mean, I, I have this uh, to a small extent because I tend to write uh, female lead characters. Um, and I've been doing that pretty much my entire career. So, you know, for the last nearly 20 years, um, it's, but but of course, in comics, graphic novels, and video games, it's not such. Nobody really, I wouldn't say nobody cares about that, but it is more accepted that you are just going to turn your hand to pretty much anything. When I started writing fiction seriously a few years ago, it's a little more of an issue because obviously this world takes that sort of thing a bit more. There's more of an idea that if you're going to spend months and months and months writing a novel, it is going to be something that means a lot to you. And you said, you know, your breakthrough was writing a novel that you would want to read, which I think is vitally important. You know, that's what I do all the time. But having done so, 
people will then assume that it's also, uh, you know, has a great amount of meaning mm. to you because you spend so much time doing it. And so that is, I mean, I've been very fortunate in that I, I have a prior body of work that I can point to. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I haven't, and maybe it's just because I'm, you know, middle-aged white guy and I kind of get away with it. I'm not sure, but I haven't faced too much criticism for writing women if anything i get people interested in like why why do you write women all the time you know i don't think that bothers people so much uh because a lot of women writers now crime writers they write ma- male characters yes, and so the opposite exactly. uh, opposite should also be i think it's when so for instance a few years ago i wrote a a, a novel a crime novel set in uh the high arctic in you know but way above canada in a tiny island uh populated by inuit and clearly, I'm not Inuit, <laughs> and don't know much about that culture until I researched it. So you know, I couldn't, I couldn't get make any headway with that uh, because I just didn't have the authenticity to be able to to write about it, uh, even though I thought I was onto a really good idea there. So you know, you just never know. Yeah, you're, you're right. It's obviously race issues are much more emotionally charged with uh, issues of cultural appropriation, what have you. Uh, and yeah, it is a tricky one. I mean, I, ha- I have written non-white characters and even non-white lead characters in the past, but again, that was in uh, graphic novels and video games where once again, it's assumed that everybody is just going to be a jobbing writer who writes everything. So you don't really get back. Uh, yeah, I mean, everything, I, I feel the industry moves in, 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 in cyclical waves. So, you know, we went through this whole sort of years of, of everybody talking about diversity now what I've noticed, so for the last two years, I've been judging something called the Betty Trust Prize, which is a, you know, a big prize with money attached for literary authors run by the Society of Authors in, in the UK. And I get sent nearly 40-odd novels, debut novels to, to look at uh, on, during that process. And what I've noticed over the last couple of years is that there has been a lot of new debuts of uh, women's stories of of women being uh, oppressed uh, or making uh, a break from being oppressed and, and breaking out from that, and, and uh, this has come in the wake of the Me Too movement. So, you know, the industry is also dictated to a certain extent by what's happening in the wider wider environment. Yes, well, and it always has been, hasn't it? Yeah. So let's let's move on to. Uh, away from the more sort of philosophical questions of the industry mm-hmm. <laughs> to the more kind of nuts and bolts. What is your typical writing day like? Because I know that you do still work, as you say, at UCL. So uh, do you only write on days when you're not in the office or do you combine the two or what? Uh, I, I write pretty much every day, if not writing then editing uh, or reading through notes. And what I do is I'm, I have to be very organized uh, because I waste most of my summer weekends playing cricket. Um, <laughs> so I, I, I get up early. I'm, I'm up at about half six. I do a couple of hours of writing and then I will get ready for work and I'll wander into work a little bit later, uh, which is why I enjoy the flexibility of, of working at university. I don't write in the evenings. I find my brain has, has, has died by then. So it's a pretty much early mornings and then the weekends. Uh, and you have to be quite organized, I think. So this is what drives me nuts. So you hear this whole debate about people who don't plot and people who just 
go by the seat of their pants. And I can I can't get my head around how anyone can write a novel without actually having a detailed plan and structure in place because that's what I spend a lot of time doing. I spend a few months, maybe two, three months, getting that detailed structure, doing the research, making sure all the chapters make sense, all the characters make sense, the plot arcs make sense, put that into a massive spreadsheet, know the timeline. Once I've done that, then uh, the writing becomes relatively simple. You You actually make a spreadsheet. Wow. I do. I do. I'm, you know, I've been a management consultant or project manager, etc. most most of my life. So I find it very easy to organize my thoughts. Also, and this is a tip, uh, I know that a lot of my friends, a lot of writers use uh, post-it notes and stuff and stick them on a wall. And then they have to move them around to get the timeline, timelines right. It's just so much easier to do that on a spreadsheet. Because you have, <laughs> you know, you have everything in rows, and you can just cut and paste rows up and down until you get the timeline right. I mean, I, I'm with you, not so much on the spreadsheet. I don't, uh, I don't use Excel, but I am an inveterate outliner as well. And, and like you, uh, pantsers baffle the hell out of me. But there are, you know, I know I have friends who write that way, and there are some very, very successful authors. In fact, I believe, doesn't Lee Child uh, write without a plot? Yeah, he claims that. He claims that. But I think that's just part <laughs> of his – he's a lovely guy, but I, I think that's just part of the myth that he wants to create. I mean, if you look at his stories, and I've read quite a few of them, uh, he claims that he just wakes up on the same day every year and just thinks of one thought and then just follows it through into a novel. But then when you look at how tightly plotted some of those books are, there's absolutely no way that he hasn't put quite a bit of thought into those plots to try and get some of the things uh, things right. You don't just wait. I mean, I, I could just wake up now and say, oh, well, there's a crisp packet here. Can I make a story out of it? No, that's not going to work. So, uh. <laughs> well, I think the most of the pantsers that I know, the way they work is they they do work that way. But then they understand that when they get to the end of that first draft, so much will now be different. You know, their thoughts about the story will have developed and changed and evolved so much that they will now go back and completely rewrite. Mm-hmm. You know, the the previous ninety percent, so that everything fits in with where they ended up. It seems like a very tortuous way of doing things to me, to write and then have to rewrite. I mean, I have a couple of author friends who, uh, this is another tip, do not leave things till the last minute. I have a couple of authors who try who, who try and write an entire novel in the space of, you know, six weeks when their deadline is looming because uh, they claim they work better under pressure. But when you see the finished result, it's terrible compared to what it might have been had they uh, taken their time because one of the things that you should do as an author is to write something, put it away for a week or so, and come back and you will immediately see how you can improve that by 20, 30% straight away before anybody else has even looked at it. Uh, you can't do that if you don't leave yourself enough time. It's the hare and the tortoise analogy, is what I always use, you know, mm-hmm. which is obviously a very old and cliched story, but it is an apt analogy that, uh, you know, like my. Um, Word count. I work to a word count rather than time because I don't have to then go off to a, an office like you do. So I can afford my time can be flexible. So instead, I work to a word count. And my word count when I'm writing a novel is just 1500 words per day, which is not a lot compared to some authors. You know, I know authors whose word counts, they like to do three, four, five thousand words a day. To me, that's I have occasionally done that, but that's a rare day. That's an exceptionally good day when I hit that word count. But as long as I hit, that 1500 that's my minimum as long as i hit that i know how long it will take me to write a novel 
I know, you know, that you can just spread it out over a few months and it, that's how long it will take and it will get done. Uh, precisely. So I, I work to about 90,000 90, words, let's say. That's literally 90 days of doing a thousand words a day. And an experienced author can write a thousand words in an hour and a half easily. If, if the ideas are already there, as in my case, and the plot plan is already there. And that means that I can, I can spend three months on the plotting and get a detailed spreadsheet full of plot. And then I can bash out the novel in another three to four months. I might take issue with the word easily. There. Um, <laughs> you know, some days it's a bit like pulling teeth uh, for me, even though I do outline, you know, writing the actual scenes sometimes is, is not so easy. But, but yeah, I'm, in principle, I agree with you absolutely. I also find it very useful sometimes to, to stop at about a thousand words, even though I know I could easily keep going, uh, which sounds counterintuitive because shouldn't you just take care, take, make use of that energy while you've got it? Uh, um, what I'll do then is to just leave it there because then I know that then when I come back to it the next day, I won't be drained. I won't feel completely, uh, you know, sucked dry of blood. Uh, I will, I will actually still have that whole idea and that energy and I might have even molded it a bit more and then I can just quickly get straight into it again. Uh, yeah, I think, uh, I can't remember who, but I read somebody a while ago called that writing downhill. Right. The idea that, yeah, you leave yourself a, a, a tempter at the end of the day that you can't wait to get back to writing so that when you start the next day, you have that enthusiasm because you're like, oh yes, I really wanted to yeah, do this. Nice expression. Um, I, it is. I don't do that. <laughs> Maybe I should, <laughs> but I don't do that. If I've got that energy, I will just keep going. Um, because like I say, those days for me are actually quite rare. So I, I like to take advantage of them and feel good about it. No, I, I've never written four or 5,000 words in a day. I, d I don't want to because I think the quality suffers. Well, like I say, I mean, it's rare for me, but on the days that I do, I then, you know, sort of parade around the house like I've won a boxing match. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so talk, I mean, talking about discipline, so here's the, and also outlining and planning, you are, like many crime writers, you write a series. You're up to, I think you said five in the Baby Ganesh series? Five plus two novellas, yeah. Right, yeah. So how, and I know you've written about this and given, you know, sort of tips and advice for people on writing your series. I'm just starting out on that path myself. I've got two novels so far in my Bridget Sharp series. Uh, and I've done serialized comics uh, and I've done sequels to video games and stuff, but I haven't yet done a full, you know, I'm certainly nowhere near four or five novels in a series. So how do you go about making sure that each book works in a series and setting that whole thing up. So I have quite a lot of experience with this, and I've written a piece for the Writers and Artists online uh, web website uh, about writing a series. And I have uh, a, a slightly different experience of this to most crime authors. Most crime authors start by either a one-book or a two-book two book deal for a series, whereas I was given a four-book deal by Hodder, so I immediately had to put together four synopses and explain to them how I would develop this as a series. And uh, what I came up with is five rules. These are the five rules that I think you need to stick to if you're trying to write a series. And so rule number one, identify your identity and stick to it. So what is it that establishes your characters, your location, your premise, your tone in that first book? So for me, it was obviously trying to write about India and set the tone as a not quite cozy, because I talk about slightly darker things in the Baby Ganesh series, 
but set that tone. Rule number two, your characters have to stay in character. So, you know, sometimes people say, well, your characters have to evolve and do this and that. But what they can't do, they can evolve. But what they can't do is to step out of character. So Inspector Chopra is a very honest man in a dishonest environment, you know, a corruption-riddled police service. He can't suddenly take a bribe, for instance. Rule number three, don't let complacency dull your plotting. The worst enemy wants to, for example, I'm... I'm at book five. So when I'm writing book five, I'm thinking to myself, I know these characters. I can bash this out very quickly and easily. And that's that's where you could suddenly start making your books dull because you don't put invest the time in creating better plots. And that's why my plots have, have become more complex as each novel has gone by, uh, just to avoid that. Rule number four, don't forget to climax every time. So this is another thing where when you're writing a series, Crime series is not like, say, the Great Game of Thrones series or the Harry Potter books, where you have a narrative arc that stretches over the entire course of the books. Uh, in crime novels, usually you have a single story each time using shared characters, and each time you've got to make sure that the reader gets a payoff at the end of that book. There might be some lingering personal, personal character arcs, but the story has to climax every time. And the last one, rule number five, create a world that readers wish to revisit. The strength of a series lies in giving readers more of what they want, but at the same time, each new book must have some element of surprise, new plots, new sub-characters, fresh locations. And that's how you keep that magic alive. So that's my guide to how to write a really good series. That's fantastic. And yeah, same but different is you know, such an important thing in writing series, I think in any media. Um, but yeah, especially so in novels, it's interesting what you said about characters staying true to themselves, because, uh, I define these as, uh, book series are either epics or serials. And that's what I mean by that is by epic. I don't necessarily mean, you know, a literal grand epic or a fancy epic or something, but they are, stories where the characters change they are you know the, your classic hero's journey story where by the end of it the characters and especially the protagonist have overcome something some great challenge and evolved and become better people themselves whereas in a serial it's the world that is affected by the protagonist the protagonists don't change much right. at all uh but they they change the world around them by bringing justice to the world or you know uh, secondary characters in a cop series getting promotions or that sort of thing. Right. And so I think it, that's a very important distinction for people to hold is that there are these two very different kinds of series. You know, epics are trilogies, your classic fantasy trilogy or something, that's an epic. But what you're writing is a serial. And so, as you say, it's very important that the characters don't change and evolve too much. Yeah. A little bit, but not, you know, their circumstances can change a little. Mm -hmm. But if you, if they change too much, as you say, readers will go, well, this is not, this is not why I turned up. I turned up because I wanted to read about this character I have come to know and love over the course of several books. And you touch on a very important point because I often get asked at workshops, what's more important, plot or character? And I say, this is my personal opinion, that character is just slightly more important than plot. Obviously, you can't have a terrible plot. Nobody will read your book. But if you create really compelling characters then and you write a series, then occasionally, uh, even if your plot stumbles, you will be forgiven because people love your characters so much. And we can all think of series, not just crime series, but other series that we read 
where we sometimes think, mm, book five was a bit naff, but, you know, I, I love the character, so I'm going to carry on reading. I think the, the sort of classic example of that is a lot of the uh, American network, I mean, this is crime, but network procedural crime and mystery shows, uh, things like, you know, CSI, classic yeah. and NCIS, <laughs> which, you know, a lot of the time, the actual story and the mystery is not that great. It's really not. But people tune in. And I, I do this as well. You know, I'm not sort of, I'm not looking down on people who do this because I do it myself. You tune in because actually you just want to see the characters That's right. do their Absolutely thing. right. And I watched uh, all, what is it, seven series of CSI set across three different uh, locations. Um, Grissom, I think, was my yep. favorite favorite one of the lot. Um, and yeah, you're right. And, I, and, you know, I work in a crime science department, so we absolutely hate the CSI if, effect <laughs> as, it's, as it's been coined because it completely distorts people's views of what can be uh, what technology can achieve you know you do not just uh, put in a fingerprint or a dna sample and suddenly five minutes later you know who the terrorist is and then you go out and shoot them uh, it doesn't, it doesn't... Uh, not not even five minutes on CSI, <laughs> exactly. yes. and who are these crime scene investigators who carry guns yes <laughs> and kick down doors what's going on there exactly exactly <laughs> they're providing an end-to-end service that's what they are you know they, they also do the interrogations uh, Oh yes, I and the paperwork that, yeah. and everything else. No, actually, they don't bother yeah. much, with, much with paperwork in CSI. <laughs> <laughs> Very much. Um, okay, so we, you talked about uh, revision and sort of you know outlining so that you don't have to do much revision, but presumably you know everybody does your second draft at, at least, if you know, and sometimes more than that. Um, so how do you? As an outliner, how do you go about doing that? Because I have a very detailed plan to work to. I work to the plan. I finish a complete draft, 90-odd thousand words, put it away for a few weeks, then come back, and then I will print it out, and I will and I will then start making notes all the way through with a big red pen and, and looking at it, looking at the structure, looking at things that don't work, looking at characters I could, that I don't need, um, you know, all that bloat that comes with a first draft. Uh, and getting rid of that bloat so it will it will sharpen it down so i'll go from ninety thousand and i'll immediately kick out five six seven thousand words and then i might build up some of those back again with 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 holes in the that still need to be plugged in spite of my detailed plan there are always small holes that need to be plugged um so i'll do that twice and then i will send it off to my editor oh right so it is effectively a third draft that you're that you call your first yeah which is that's the same as me i do I do a very rough draft to start with. Then I go through and, yes, make sure that, as you said, the logic and the plot holes and everything are all fixed. And then I go through a third time for sort of character and dialogue and, and phrasing polish. Absolutely. And I think what you learn when you work with uh, an experienced editor, as I've been lucky enough to work with that, with that Hodder, is that they know a lot more than you do as a debut author or as a, as a new author. And you have to somehow get over yourself if that's uh if that's the best yep. way of putting it uh get over the whole i'm an author this is my baby i don't want anyone to touch it uh and allow them to lead you in new directions and say to you look that might have sounded great in your head but it just doesn't work based on my very vast experience of of reading this kind of crime fiction so go away and think again <laughs> yeah go away and do it better <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, they're very polite. My, ed- my editor was very, very polite about these kind of things. Uh, and, we, she, you know, she's like the old Nigel, Nigel Clough comment. Um, 
you know, we we'll 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 talk about this this topic for for a long time, and then we'll decide I'm right. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is a democracy, and I've got the vote. Um, so, how much do your drafts? How much do you think changes then between that sort of that first that very first draft, the one that you put away for a week, and then after you you bring it back out, go through and revise it? You know, how much do you think? How different is it? I would say twenty twenty odd percent. Oh, right. So you might lose an entire character then. Yes. I mean, that's quite a bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I might lose a character because, uh, you know, in my last novel, for instance, I, I had to lose two characters because uh, I eventually felt that it was too complex. Uh, so, you know, there's a, there's a balance between making something readable and, and, and you know, it get, keeps, the, keeps the pages turning and moving or getting so bogged down in your own brilliance. <laughs> Or your your ideas about your own brilliance of coming up with this super complex plot that you suddenly forget that a reader reading this is not as close to it as you. You know that you've been with it for months. You know you spend days with it, uh, whereas a reader might be reading a couple of chapters now, then coming back to it after a couple of days or or, or however, and they cannot keep so many characters and such a complex plot and so many subplots in their head or they may not want to and it might put them off now, some readers will obviously love that but sometimes it might not work so you have to assess that within the genre that you're writing yeah well and just judge your audience as well i mean i've read you know i as i'm sure like you i i do read a lot i read every day uh you know i'm i'm not a fast reader but i do get through books i, you know, I average a, a fiction book a week um and so i have got those things in my head and i've still come across books where i get halfway through and i'm like i have no idea who half of these people are <laughs> and, and sometimes it works i mean i i read game of thrones a couple of years ago the book before i'd watched a single episode of the series and i was blown away because you've got 800 pages with a cast of 50 characters and yet you know i personally was sold i i loved those characters and i loved the complexity and i loved the the, the, the number of plots that were going on. And, uh, you know, I wasn't even miffed that a lot of them didn't weren't tied up neatly at the end of the first book and I had to go and read the rest. <laughs> That's how he gets you. So for me, sometimes it can work really, really well. Uh, but it does depend on the genre. I mean, fantasy almost expects it. That's true. But I don't know if it, it I don't think, uh, it's a rare crime novel that is 800 pages with a cast of, you know, a do even a dozen characters and it works. I can't really think of one off the top of my head. Right, I'm sure one exists, but whether it's good is is a different question. Yeah, I mean, I'm with you on the Game of Thrones. Like I say, this isn't. I'm, I wasn't knocking that uh, the I, the concept necessarily of having lots and lots of characters and plots. Because yeah, I read them uh, back in the early 2000s, the first few books, long before there was even talk of a TV series. Um, and like you, yeah, had no problem following along because George R. R. Martin obviously is a fantastic writer, and I could keep all that stuff in my head. I have, however, found as time has gone on that apart from the core characters I do have within the novels have great difficulty keeping up with many of the side characters, not because of the length of the books, but because of the gap between each book being published. A, a writer who does it practically the opposite. I mean, he's passed away now, but uh, you know, he was practically my favorite writer in my early twenties uh, was Michael Crichton who who wrote the Andromeda strain mm. and then you know Jurassic Park and all of the other big techno thrillers uh, because if you read those books uh there's it it's all plot there's there's very little literary flair the characters are sort of one dimensional most of the time 
Um, but the plots are, for me anyway, they were super, super compelling. Uh, you know, Jurassic Park is still what remains one of my favourite novels, but nobody would accuse it of being a literary classic. On the other hand, you can you know who every character in that book is. They may be, you know, somewhat two-dimensional uh, in some ways, but you you never lose track of who they are. True enough. So, you know, there is something to be said for and, that. And the same goes for the um, Dan Brown novels. I mean, I love those novels. A lot of people, you know, knock them sometimes for not being literary, but I don't think they need to be. They do what they, they intend to do, which is to be really good thrillers uh, that exercise your, your mind. I'm not a huge fan of them myself, but I have. You, you don't get to sell that many books unless people are being entertained. You know, unless you are making your readers turn the pages, and that you have to respect. Yeah, absolutely. So, do you use uh, beta readers during this at any point during this process? Uh, never, never in my whole life have I ever had the option of using beta readers. Uh, you know, <laughs> I grew up in an environment. Uh, so, being absolutely honest. The Asian community that I was in didn't read. Uh, there was nobody within my family, extended family, who, who who read fiction. So there was no one for me to show anything that I'd written to. Uh, certainly not my first novel. There was nobody in India when I was working there who was remotely interested in reading fiction. Uh, and by the time I met one or two people out there, it was too late. I was already in the, the mind frame of, nope, I write it myself. It's a solitary endeavor. And then I send it out to agents and I get collect my rejection letters. Now I'm lucky enough since being in the industry to have met a few like-minded authors, uh, a very close-knit group of uh, you know, people who've appeared on, on a podcast that I run called the Red Hot Chili Writers. And that small group of, of, of five or six people who've had a similar experience to me being British Asian and breaking into the publishing industry, um, they're the people who I might show an, an opening chapter to just to elicit their thoughts uh, on, on what they feel about about how that's going. But not the whole manuscript? No, no, nobody reads the whole manuscript except uh, nobody's got the time, to be honest with you. Um, the, the one thing I will say to people starting off these days is that you are so lucky. So you're so fortunate. You've got online forums. You've got writing groups everywhere. You've got competitions and things that you can write into that we didn't have when, when I was young. Um, you know, you've got an embarrassment of riches in terms of trying to get feedback. And you should absolutely try to get that feedback as early as you possibly can in your career. I agree. I mean, it will be painful. There's no doubt about that. Uh, but it's going to be painful. It's, you know, whether you do it now or whether you wait until you're 30 years old, it's going to be painful. But don't they say that, <laughs> don't they say that writers need the hide of a rhinoceros? Uh, yes, I, I think I've heard that one before. The hide of a rhino and... I'm sure there was a second part to that. Uh, truism, well, prefer preferably a large endowment from somebody because otherwise you're, <laughs> you're going to be eating Rice Krispies for the rest of your life. Uh, the, that's the old joke. How do you make a small fortune in publishing? Start with a large fortune. <laughs> Absolutely right. <laughs> so what? Uh, let, let's start to close this out then. What parts of the writing do you really enjoy? Like what, you know, what do you really enjoy sitting down to do? Like, oh, joy, I've got to write a X you know, scene today or something. Okay. So I, this is, this is going to sound terrible, but I actually enjoy laughing at my own jokes. So I, I, I bring humor into the, the baby Ganesh agency series. Uh, and you know, so I will, I will seed in because Chopra is a very serious man and it's a serious side of India that I'm trying to showcase the darker side. Uh, but the baby elephant, I mean, it's a metaphor. It's not, I don't expect anyone to take it too seriously. It's a metaphor for India. Uh, but it does allow me to occasionally bring in, 
bring in uh, some of some of the lighter elements. And if I if I crack a good joke on paper, I do find myself chuckling at it, and I do I do like that. Um, but otherwise, it's it's really about uh, for me. I work on themes, so each of my books there'll be a particular theme that I try and capture. So, for instance, the the fifth book in that series, um, which is which is out, it's called the Bad Bad Day at the Vulture Club. And it's about the Parsi community who came to India from Iran, became very influ- influential, very rich. Uh, they live in Mumbai mainly. And they, uh, they, unlike Muslims and Hindus, they don't bury their dead or cremate their dead. They leave their dead op- in the open in a particular structure, stone structures called the Towers of Silence, in a small wooded area in the center of Mumbai uh, for vultures to eat. It's, process, it's a process called excarnation. And, you know, that's been their traditional practice for millennia. But the problem is now with Mumbai being so crowded, there are big, tall apartment blocks on either side. And the vultures have a habit of picking up bits of corpse, uh, uh, you know, taking it away as a snack and then occasionally dropping it into the homes of these surrounding residents. So there's a huge move to try and get them to move their, their sacred holy ground out of the city. And of course, this has put them at, on, at loggerheads with everybody else in the city. And so... For me, it was trying to explore themes like this, interesting themes about India that people in the West might not be so familiar with. And that's what really gets me excited. Okay, so the counter then, what parts do you dread coming to write? Like, for I'll give you, for example, I dread writing action sequences. And I, I'm told people enjoy them. I'm told I'm fairly good at them, but I hate writing them. And every time I have to sit down and I know I've got to do one today, you know, it's it's my fingers are just like, rocks and i can't move them so what what do you dread sitting at the keyboard to do i can answer that in one word filler so for those of you who are not uh, not authors yet uh filler is 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 that little connective tissue between uh the high points and it's necessary because you can't just go from a big action scene to a big revelation to another action scene you've got to have that filler. And that filler is where perhaps, so for instance, in crime novels, you often, often see it when the, um, the protagonists, the detectives uh, are back at the station and they're making some small talk or they're back with their families and doing some family stuff so we can build a bit of a, a character profile of them. Um, and sometimes filler is done very, very well. Uh, and sometimes filler is, you know, it becomes obvious to you that it's there as filler to try and, you know, mark mark time before the next big revelation, the next big scene. It is tricky, as you say, kind of making it feel interesting and relevant while also, as you say, it's got to be a valley in the uh, the graph, if you like, of the book. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And the way to do it well, uh, you know, I'm not, I've tried to do it reasonably well. I've t- I'm told that I do it reasonably well because I, as I said, I try and inject a bit of humor and choppers with his family, etc. But uh, in other instances that I've seen it done very well is where people have a very good grasp of dialogue and the dialogue is snappy and it crackles so that even when the detectives are in their office, you know, the dialogue holds you even if they're not making massive revelations. Uh, or you're thinking outside of the box. So you're avoiding the cliches of the, the three times divorced cop, etc. Uh, and maybe you're thinking slightly, slightly outside of the box and quirky things that are happening in, in their personal lives that uh, just, just shake things up a bit. That's, mm. you know, it's, it's, it's not always possible to avoid cliches because cliches work. 
You know, they, they, they're cliches for a reason, which itself is a cliche, but, uh, they, <laughs> but they work. They work and people are, are drawn to them because they work. No, that's absolutely true, yeah. So uh, just final question then. What is something that you have read or watched recently where the, the writing itself really impressed you? Okay, so I've just been, uh, been binge-watching uh, a couple of Netflix series, and the one that comes to mind is a crime series called Dead to Me. Uh, and it's about two women. One of them, her husband is killed in a hit and run accident. So she goes to a grief therapy uh, you know, session. Uh, she meets another woman there who has also lost someone. And they bond over, over, the, over their you know, shared grief. And then they decide to go off and try and work out who the hit and run driver was of the woman whose husband was killed. And you know, it's a 10-episode 30 minutes an episode series on Netflix. I binged watched it all in a day. And the writing is black humor, exactly the kind of uh, humor that I like. But there's also serious uh, elements to it. And I just thought it was brilliant. And I think it's already been picked up for a second series. You binge watched the whole thing in a day. Wow. Yeah, because they're, they're 20, <laughs> I mean, they're literally 25 minute to 30 minute episodes. So that's uh, 300 minutes. It's not, it's, what's that, five hours? That's, that's quite a lot. <laughs> I mean, it was a day off. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> but that's how good it was. So. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah. It does speak to the uh, quality of the series, sure. All right, Vasim, where can people find you online? Uh, VasimKhan.com. Uh, and that's V-A-S-E-E-M-K-H-A-N.com, yeah. And uh, you mentioned earlier that you host a podcast yourself, The Red Hot Chili Writers. Where's that? Uh, that's uh, redhotchiliwriters.com. So red hot chili, chili as C H I double L I. But you can also find it via my website. Oh, of course, yeah. Um, and then finally, then, what work of yours would you recommend that listeners check out if they haven't read anything by you? I mean, so far, the only things published have been in the Baby Ganesh Agency series. And um, uh, I, 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 you could pick any one as a starting point because they all stand alone. Uh, the Unexpected Inheritance of Inspector Chopra is the starting point. Uh, I particularly like uh, Murder at the Grand Raj Palace, the fourth one, because it's set in the in the real Taj Palace Hotel in Mumbai, which is a huge history behind it. Excellent. Well, Vaseem, thank you so much for coming on the show. And thank you so much for hosting me, Anthony. And thank you all out there for listening to Writing and Breathing. If you enjoyed the show, why not become a Patreon supporter? Patrons get exclusive access to episodes a week before they're published. So go to patreon.com slash writingandbreathing to make your pledge. If you want to get in touch, go to writingandbreathing.com for links to email and Twitter. And that is also where you'll find all the previous episodes. Writing and Breathing is a 7RQ production and is made in England. Remember to write. Remember to breathe. I'll see you next time.